Is your recovery dependent on someone else's? How does this hurt? Welcome to episode 374 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Lauren, Louise, Sharon, Delette, Margaret, and Matthew. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Lauren, Louise, Sharon, Delette, Margaret, and Matthew for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer. I am your host today. Joining me today is Esther. Welcome back to The Recovery Show, Esther. Thank you. Thanks for having me. What reading have you brought us today? So I thought I'd start with Courage to Change, April 18, page 109. And it's you can find it, the way that I found it was through the index under slogans for Let It Begin With Me. I had spent a lot of time yearning for things I wasn't getting from the alcoholic in my life. As a part of my Al-Anon recovery, I was encouraged to put those needs on paper. Courtesy, respect, attention, affection, communication. My list of the areas in which I felt my loved one had let me down went on and on. My sponsor applauded my honesty and then suggested that I could bring all the things on my list into my life. The catch? I had to give what I wanted to receive and become what I wanted to attract. Did I present a shining example of courtesy and all the rest? If not, I had a wonderful list of goals already on paper. I have often heard that we get back what we give, and now I know that it's true. As I grew kinder and more loving, other people responded to the change. I I also felt much better about myself. Today I can honestly say that all of the qualities on my list exist in my life at least some of the time. I hadn't expected these results, or any others for that matter. I was too busy focusing on myself. I think that's why it worked. Today's reminder. Today I can take an active role in fulfilling my needs. I can choose to become someone I would want to have in my life. Our title today is, My Recovery is Not Conditional on Yours. I see how that reading connects there. Let it begin with me. I'm responsible for my recovery. I'm responsible for bringing the things that I want. It reminds me of the quote I've seen attributed to several different people, which is, be the change that you want to see. I think that's also very clear in that reading. You suggested this topic to me. What brought it to your attention or to your top of your mind? I've been coming to Al-Anon in some capacity for just over three years. And the thing that originally took me to my first meeting was that my partner was drinking a lot and heavily, and that was changing how we were with each other in our relationship. And I was feeling very responsible for all of it. Mm. I had my first six meetings while he was still in the throes of it, you could say. And then I sort of dropped out For various reasons, I was moving countries and so forth, and I dropped out for about six months. And when I came back, it was when he had 
started attending AA, I decided I needed to do my own recovery regardless of what was going on with him. And it seemed to make sense that if we wanted to be in a relationship together, you know, if he's working on himself, I also ought to work on myself. And that's what that looked like for me. He had been in AA for a couple of years and I was about to go and visit him in October for the first time in the two-year period that we've had our international borders closed due to the pandemic. About a couple of weeks before I departed, he told me at the end of a conversation in a kind of by-the-way moment that he had decided to stop going to his AA meetings. And he, he prefaced it by saying he didn't believe that it was necessarily permanent. He didn't believe that there was a kind of a strong, I'm never going to be back. But for now, he decided he needed to stop going to the meetings. And I, of course, <laughs> my bodily reaction to this was to immediately take it completely personally, to think you choose this moment of all the moments to experiment with stop going to AA meetings. Like I'm about to see you for the first time in two years and see if this relationship can even be a thing. And now is the moment you decide to do this. This is going on inside me. But I was able to observe it at a distance and I didn't allow it to come out, which is a very new and special <laughs> miracle of this recovery program. I was able to employ the pause because I knew that what was going on inside me was a response based on experiences I'd had before but it didn't necessarily have to inform what would happen from here on. And that's something that this program's really taught me. That, yeah, the first thought is not necessarily the helpful one. So I did employ the pause. I let him speak for as long as he wanted to speak. And I made a decision in that moment. Whatever I would say in response, it was going to be consciously not about inflicting harm because that's the sort of thing I used to do when I was reactive. I would be verbally harmful in my responses to things because that was a fear response when he was um, drinking. What was fascinating and what I'm most proud of is that he said to me, would you like to know more about why I've decided to stop going to meetings? Like, I can tell you more about this. We can have a conversation about it. Because there, there had been previous conversations where he was giving me the odd sense that he wasn't feeling like things were going particularly well in his meetings. The dynamics were difficult he wasn't actually feeling like they were giving him recovery, all this sort of stuff. So I had a sense that there was something going on. But yeah, so he, he offered to just give me more. Of course, yes, I wanted to know more. I wanted to know everything <laughs> immediately. And I wanted to know all of it. Why did I want to know all of it? Well, clearly I wanted to know more of it because I wanted to fix it. Or I wanted to provide suggestions on all the things he could do that would make AA more appealing to go back to or whatever it might be, you know. Oh, boy. The thought that comes into my head at that point is, well, if I know why you made this unwise decision, in my opinion, yeah. then I can formulate arguments against those reasons. Right, exactly. I have a solution to all of those things. But I, I was really, I, I was able to step back from, this is the, the, the sort of magic of the pause for me, is that I even have time in those few moments to examine my motives for things like that. It's not because... I want to be a great listener and just let him speak that I would want to know the reasons why he didn't go. It's because I want to control things and it's because I want to um, manipulate the outcome. So I actually said, yeah, I do want to know more, <laughs> but I don't think you should tell me. <laughs> and that was like, 
one of the most difficult, but also most rewarding things I was able to do. I was able to walk away from that and think, what could it possibly have led to if I did know every reason that he gave? It could have probably led to me being more frustrated because I would have disagreed with the reasons, no doubt, or some of the reasons. It would have led to, even if I didn't say anything to offer solutions, I would have walked away obsessing about it for sure. And I probably would have gotten resentful. Because I would, again, read into all those decisions in whatever way that I want to read into them and, once again, make it personal. Really, there was no outcome of me saying, yes, please tell me everything that could have led to anything good from my perspective after walking away from that. The thing that really struck me was, yeah, I'm in this program of recovery for me and if I'm in doubt that I should be in this program of recovery because you're no longer in yours, then I've been wrongheaded about this the whole time. You know, my being an Alan is not conditional on you being an AA. If you'd asked me, are you only an Al-Anon because your partner's an AA? I would have said, of course not. I'm an Al-Anon for me. But that was in a kind of heady level. Because I had this really visceral bodily reaction to him telling me, actually, I've decided to stop going to these meetings. It it occurred to me that I hadn't fully internalized that this program is 100% for me. Like, otherwise, there's no point. There's absolutely no point to it if it's hinged on the other person doing their program perfectly or staying in their program in parallel. So it was really quite empowering. And I felt like it was a significant first opportunity in a long time to give me the sense of how recovery is there for me in moments like this. They're not more important than the day-to-day maintenance and that like when things are going well, I have my recovery to boost me. That's also really important for me to have a quality of life. But for me, I guess recovery tools really show what they're made of when I have moments like this where I'm truly challenged in my way of thinking and and where it comes so much to the foreground how obsessive I can be and how controlling I can be and how with the click of a finger I could return to that version of myself where I would see it as my job to control the other person's well-being or whether or not they're drinking or whether or not they're in recovery. So it's pretty miraculous. And I loved this idea of my recovery is not conditional on yours or anybody else's or frankly anything. It's about me. And yeah, that's why I chose all of today's readings based around the slogan, let it begin with me. I also hear in the decision to not ask for the details, I hear let go and let God. Because of what you said about if I heard the details, then I would start trying to manage it. I would start trying to fix it. And so Making the decision to not hear that is really letting go and letting whoever. I was thinking about my experience early-ish in the program in my first year where I came to Al-Anon when my wife was in treatment. And a few weeks later, and I don't actually remember how many, which is probably good, she relapsed and then... Shortly after that, within a month or so, she went into um, a long-term residential program. That actually gave me 
the freedom to work my program without having to, you know, worry about hers, worry and scare quotes, because she was in a safe place. She was in a, in a treatment center. Although when one of the people in that center went out, that was a little scary. Oh, wait, that can happen? No, huh? But then she came home and we were both in recovery and that pink cloud thing happening and it was all wonderful. And then she relapsed. And maybe relapse is a different from deciding not to work your recovery in a particular way. So I don't know. I, I want to say if she had said, I don't need AA anymore, but I'm not going to drink. I don't know what I would have said at that point. I was less than a year in. I didn't have a whole lot of recovery to stand on, a whole lot of these principles, a whole lot of the slogan sort of ingrained. But yeah, with the relapse, I knew that I needed to step up my program. So in that sense, my recovery was dependent on her lack of recovery. So it, yeah, it is, think about it, it, it is different. At this point, she's, let me do some math here. She's over 16 years sober. I've been in al It'll be 20 years in a couple of months. Isn't that amazing? Whoa. Yeah. We really work our programs independently. I don't keep track of her meetings. She doesn't keep track of mine, except in as much as it's, oh, you're in a meeting this evening. So, you know, we're not watching TV after dinner or whatever. So yeah, at first I thought, oh yeah, that happened to me. But then I was like, no, actually that, that didn't happen to me. So now I wonder how would I have reacted? Yeah, it's interesting that you say that relapse is maybe something different in a way, and I see exactly what you mean. I, I think, though, that first of all, I have strong opinions about what recovery means because I've been in Alabama, right? And some of that comes from just the rhetoric that I hear in meetings, which I absorb, even if I don't mean to consciously be dogmatic or hardcore. I hear people saying, including my sponsor, an alcoholic no longer in a 12-step program is an alcoholic not in recovery. She's very categorical about the way that she says this. And that's the sort of more hardline belief, I suppose, that some people hold. And I understand that there's an important function to that kind of thinking for a lot of people. I think for me, what was interesting is that the sponsor phone call that I had after this conversation that I had with him, it had a few different effects on me. One of them was to, first of all, remember that I was being taken care of in this program and that the fact that I had a sponsor to call was extremely important. I didn't have to deal with this alone. And she said something really profound to me that changed my thinking on this because I said, you know, what if he's self-sabotaging? I can't help but thinking that, or he's like sabotaging this relationship, even if it's like unconsciously. Why of all the times of choosing not to go to AA meetings would this happen just before I go and visit? Like, what could this possibly be a coincidence? And she said, but the thing is, even if that is true and he's doing some kind of like really deep unconscious self-sabotaging thing, that's actually still about him. Even if he's sabotaging your relationship, that's actually still about him. That's not about you. Even if you're involved in that story, it comes from him. I can't remember her exact wording, but when I was like, whoa, it's still about him, even if it's about me, that really blew my mind and helped me again remember that, yes, I'm in this program of recovery for me. Even if he is making decisions that sabotage what we have, that is actually still him and not me. That was this really huge paradigm shift. But the, but the other thing that she said to me 
which I, I had to employ, take what you like and leave the rest with, was that quote about he's no longer in recovery. And I thought, okay, maybe this is a moment where I need to talk to friends in program who are still with their loved ones, who have chosen to have a life with their loved ones who are perhaps not in recovery in whatever form that looks or not in 12-step, so that I'm not only hearing from someone who chose to walk away from a relationship like that and believes that's the right course of action, because that was her experience. She's never, ever said to me, you must do what I did and leave your partner. Like that's, then, you know, don't get me wrong, that's not what she does. But I, it's very hard if you've had a certain experience not to allow your experiences to color how you sponsor people. It's going to come through. So I actually did have a couple of phone calls with people really helpful phone calls with people who, you know, someone I know who's been married for 30 years to someone who is not a sober alcoholic by the 12-step definition, not really a self-identified alcoholic, but is one of her qualifiers, you could say. One of the reasons she's in the program does definitely drink heavily and regularly. And she has a loving long-term relationship with this person. It's not without its problems, but you know what relationship is without its problems. It gave me some perspective and I was like, okay, people do this so differently. A couple of other people said something really useful to me as well, which it's not like I'm going to be Pollyanna-ish about this, but they said there are people who leave 12-step and take the recovery that they got from it into their lives and have some other spiritual thing that guides them to continue to be sober. And it's not the end of the line necessarily if someone chooses to leave AA. Everyone does it their own way and it's his journey and you don't know what his journey is going to look like. It could look all kinds of different ways and he he could still relapse if he's in AA. Like AA isn't a kind of um, magic bullet or magic anything. So just hearing all of these different perspectives helped me really, I guess, remind myself that first of all, I don't know what his journey is going to look like. He doesn't know what his journey is going to look like and I certainly don't. And if he wants to have some kind of spiritual recovery that is not AA, that's entirely not my business. And also, there's just no way to predict any of this stuff. And it's pointless to to speculate or make a plan on it in, in my head because, of course, that's, again, controlling and manipulating. So it was just, yeah, like my sponsor has been really important, but I also find it very valuable to listen to other people's voices in the program when... For example, my sponsor can be quite hardline about certain things. And maybe that's not always the most helpful thing for me. Can be for some people, but not always for me. I think there's a reason that sometimes in meetings we read the same literature over and over again, because that means that when some idea clicks in my head, I might actually be able to find it in the book. In the book, Paths to Recovery, Helen on Steps, Traditions and Concepts, and the chapter on Step 1, It says, many alcoholics successfully recover through a variety of treatments. The Alcoholics Anonymous program is generally regarded as the most effective. So right there in our literature, it says AA is not the only way. I don't know if I know any alcoholics who have recovered through other means because people don't generally tell us about that aspect of their lives. And maybe knowing somebody who has somebody close who who is by some measure in recovery, but not in AA would be a helpful bit of experience to, to have shared with me. My wife and I are fortunate in that we have both found that the 12-step programs work for us. But I do know people that they don't work for. In fact, 
the person who gave me my one day at a time in Eleanor book almost 20 years ago when I entered the program said that they had to go to therapy to, I don't remember the exact word, but let's say wean themselves from the 12 step programs. They had to have therapy about being in a 12 step program because for whatever reason, and as far as I know, 20 years later, they're still living a, a happy, serene life despite a bunch of shit that has happened. So yeah, Al-Anon's not the only way. AA is not the only way. Uh, but they are ways that work for a lot of people. I think is key. It definitely you know, worked for me. And that's all I can mm. say. It worked for me and it seems to be working for my wife. So yay. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think... I'm really lucky that this happened at the point in my recovery that it did because perhaps a year or two earlier and I would have just been like really black and white about it and just said, if you're not working recovery then, or if you're not working 12 steps, then you're not doing recovery and ultimatum or something. I don't know. I, I don't know, but it, I, I would have at least struggled with it a lot more because I have this I was finishing step five at the time that this was happening or finishing up with step five. And I remember ha like having come face to face with all of my defects and shortcomings was a great time for this to happen because mm -hmm. I was able to think to myself, okay, yeah, I, I can see very clearly what the effect of learning more in quotation marks about why you left AA would actually, what that would actually look like for me. And I could also really see clearly what the fears that were underlying that visceral bodily response. So I had just written about those and I had spoken about those to my sponsor. So I was able to identify them quite readily in that moment. So it was beautiful, higher power timing, you could say. And yeah. And it really brought me into a new phase of let it begin with me, which was extremely important going into this this trip, seeing my long distance partner for the first time in so long, because it would be so easy to go into something like that with a huge amount of expectations. And you know what expectations are. <laughs> Premeditated resentments. Yeah. So I, I really, I had to, what I think I said was I have to put on my kind of higher power spacesuit going into this trip, like a protective bubble of sorts and remember that whatever goes on, I've got program, I've got higher power, I've got sponsor, I've got a whole range of things that have my back. And one thing that I did that I'm really also pleased that I did before I left was put in place a backup home to stay at if things mm. were going to go south so that if I needed to press the button and say, hello, I need to stay at your place, things aren't going well here. This person already knew what was up and was at the ready to let me into their home and, and, and have me stay with them. And that was great because it, it wasn't that I was doing it with the assumption that things were going to go terrible. I actually was going to do it even before he told me that he wasn't you know, going to go to AA anymore. I just thought it was a smart idea to have as a safety net because <clears throat> when you haven't seen somebody for so long, you really don't know how it's going to go. When you're so. almost halfway around the world from your home, having a backup plan sounds like a really good idea. Exactly. It's not a bad idea anyway, even yes. if these circumstances weren't what they were. <laughs> yes. It's like yes. insurance, really. Yeah. And so it was really great. Like it was difficult, but it was really great ultimately. And I ended up being able to work my step six and seven with my sponsor while I was over there. And 
that was good. And I finished step seven on arrival back here. And now I've been stalling on step eight for a while, but we can talk about that later. (laughs) So having let it begin with you and letting go and letting God, did that fix everything for you? Well, it's a good question. And I mean, I thought about that in advance and in preparation for this episode thinking, yeah, but what, where, now that it's three months after that news came and that I had to learn how to deal with it and then I'm back on my own again, what am I doing? How are things looking for me? Yeah. Look, these reminders, these reminders that I love an alcoholic are still there um, and they come up regularly and they can come in the form of really small things and they can come in the form of like pretty significant triggers less often but now and then so like last night for example or yesterday during the day last night his time daytime mine we had a conversation on the phone briefly he, he's traveling at the moment he was at his family's home in Winnipeg for Christmas and then he was there for a while and now he's moved on to Vancouver for work and then he's going to be moving on to Montreal for work so he's doing a sort of little Canada trip and we had a chat and I heard for the first time since, well, for the first time in a long time, I heard what I call the voice. (laughs) And the voice for me is, it's the, the thing that I used to hear in his voice that made me aware back in the day that he was either drinking, about to drink, or struggling massively in some form, which usually meant struggling not to drink. I learned the voice from just experience and and exposure and knowing him really well. And it became one of those kind of like hypersensitive triggers, which I had to learn how to gradually decondition myself to reacting to because I'm now at a different place and he's now at a different place. And I, I can no longer assume that I know. So even if that stuff is true or happening in some form or another, I deal with it differently now. So he had the voice. It sounded like he was having some kind of struggle with what I like to call his demons or whatever is going on there. And it was difficult. It was really difficult. Actually, the thing that I did was I I said that I needed to end the conversation. And that's not a thing I used to do. If anything, I used to dig in and, you know, try to get a sense of what was going on with him and what's he doing and what's going to happen and just get just totally obsessive. But I recognize that. That does me a lot of harm, probably does him some harm too while I'm at it. So I didn't have to say anything other than I need to go. Let's end this conversation. We can talk about whatever it is we're talking about next time we chat. And then to walk away from that and take care of myself. And that's the opposite of what I used to do. I used to walk away from conversations like that and basically freak out and lose my mind for the next 24 hours, mm-hmm. just like wondering what is going on with him and was he going to end up under a bridge or something? Because he has not exactly ended up under bridges, but you know, parallel situations. I had reasons to have those fears, yeah. but once again, now I'm in a place where I am very confident that if he ends up in a place that is that dire, he knows that he has people to call on that are not me. And it's his choice whether to use them or not. And he knows that I'm not the go-to person for that stuff anymore because we came to an agreement about about that a very long time ago now. So I can walk away from that and detach with love and hope that's not what's happening, but also let it go because there's nothing I can do about it. So that is some powerful 
use of recovery for me, especially because it doesn't happen that often anymore. So it can take me by surprise when it comes up. But more frequently than that, one of the reminders and triggers that happen, and it happened while we were trying to live together for the first time in two years, is just the sort of everyday little mood changes and irritability and the, the, the tendencies, the tendencies that remind me I love an alcoholic, which, you know, actually not that dissimilar to my stuff in certain ways. Like he gets extremely pedantic about like tidiness and, and hygiene and, and things in the home needing to be in their exact correct place. That's a, that's a the sort of thing for him when he's not drinking, he gets obsessive, but I'm kind of like that too. And I can recognize that for what it is. Even if I feel myself getting really frustrated by it, I can laugh at myself and be like, oh, you're frustrated with this because you're like that. <laughs> you sort of do this too. You've got your own variations of this theme. So I can overcome those a lot more easily, I think, based on the fact that I've done this extensive long step four where I've looked at my defects and my shortcomings and I've recognized that a lot of the things that I criticize him for somewhere within me in some form. So it's not perfect, but I still don't feel like it's my business whether he's going to AA or not. And I maintain, I insist that I will maintain that because if I don't, then that's me letting go of my recovery. And that's too valuable for me. It's mm -hmm. too important. Yeah. And it sounds like you're not internalizing that and having it drive negative feelings and behaviors for yourself. You're not internalizing his not going to AA. Let me be precise about what I meant by that. And that is definitely like to me, Ellen on recovery behavior. I, I find myself getting, what's the word here? I'll say concerned, which is probably not quite the right word about certain behaviors in, in my wife that in my opinion, are maybe sort of addict behaviors, not healthy behaviors. They show up a lot around food. The other half of that is, I think I was definitely following her into some of these behaviors. She has a piece of cake. I have a piece of cake. She eats a bunch <laughs> of popcorn. I eat a bunch of popcorn. And I've recognized that's not necessarily good for me. And so just as you were able to say, I need to end this conversation, I can say, no, I'm actually not interested in, in having whatever that is, uh, because that's what I can control. That's what I can change. I think some of it is definitely like being triggered by this addict-like behavior because it takes me back to when the substance was alcohol and all of the bad things that came out of that. And it, it's not like a conscious, it's this deep emotional business, working steps and et cetera. Looking at myself has given me more of an ability to recognize what's going on in myself when that happens. So another one is when do we go to bed? And we kind of yo-yo on this. Sometimes I'm the one who stays up way too late and sometimes She's the one that stays up way too late, but I'm at the place where if my body is telling me it's time for me to go to bed and if I'm listening, which doesn't always happen, I'll go to bed and 
not worry about she's still awake, but she has to get up early in the morning. She really ought to be getting in bed now because she has to go to work tomorrow. So she has to get up at six or whatever it is. And those thoughts might be there, but they don't win. They don't keep me awake. They don't cause me to say, hey, don't you think you ought to be going to bed? Those are like littler, smaller kind of instances of what feels to me like a similar thing. You know, she gets to make her own decisions about how to run her life. And I need to to let go of that for my own peace of mind, if nothing else. And also for the the peace of the relationship as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that she recognizes that these are not necessarily healthy behaviors on her part. And that's up to her and her program. For sure. Yeah. I really resonated with what you said about food. Actually, one of the things that I had to become clean and be very honest about with with a couple of Al-Anon friends when I was visiting him was that I had noticed that he had gained a bunch of weight. And one of them said something about how that's actually relatively common for people, for like sober alcoholics who are relatively recently in recovery, which makes a lot of sense, actually, when I think about it. Although alcohol has a lot of calories, so I know it can go both ways. (laughs) And replacing Um, the alcohol with sugar, that is, yes, that's in my understanding, that's pretty common. Yeah, I know in his case, he just has a bigger appetite than he did when he was drinking. Like he's hungry more. So that makes sense too. I noticed that and I noticed my response to it. I had some difficulty with that and it was actually really hard to admit it both Mm -hmm. to myself and, and to others because I had to say stuff like, yeah, I'm actually struggling to be attracted to that, to him with more weight on, which just makes me feel like a horrible person. Because I've also gained a lot of weight during the course of the last couple of years. And I know how to eat my feelings, that's for sure. It's not as if I'm holier than thou in any kind of way. I also recognize that that I know from various types of experiences talking to him about certain things that he already has self-esteem issues around that. Mm -hmm. So there is no good that can come from me voicing those thoughts to him. That's why I have sponsor and Al-Anon friends. So I've learned dishonesty from doing harm. So that was good. And I got over it after a certain point. Like I just had to ride that wave in a way. And I suppose when you haven't seen someone for a really long time, any changes look like big changes. But what was really fascinating was also observing how I responded to it. Was I manipulating or trying to change an outcome? Or was I actually just taking care of my side of the street? Yeah, it could have been a bit of both. But what I actually ended up doing was joining the local gym for while I was over there. Mm-hmm. And I just made a resolution to like, to take care of myself and to get up right. early and go to that gym. And was that a response, like a weird kind of arm twisty response? I don't know. If the effect of that was that I just looked after myself better, then I suppose there could have been worse outcomes. And what was interesting was that when I let go of anything about him, he actually, he's a member of that gym and he went with me sometimes and it wasn't me asking him to, he just decided to come with me sometimes. And at the end of the trip, he said, living with you is actually really good for my health. (laughs) You're a good role model for me. And in my head, I thought, "Uh uh-oh, like, I have to be very careful how I allow that to to affect me because that that's nice on the one hand. On the other hand, that's a lot of responsibility and I don't want to have that responsibility. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I, anyway, but I, I do, when I see him eat in certain ways, I do, I get this kind of like, this isn't healthy. Like you're replacing alcohol with food, but yeah, but I can let go of it and, and I can see the thought for what it is and let it wash over me as it were. So that's similar to what you're describing. Yeah. Yeah. I guess just briefly to say that the things, the triggers, which were there before recovery and before recovery, the way that they would make me behave would look different from how they make me behave now for the most part. Mm-hmm. And before being in recovery, I would just, yeah, I really needed Q-tip. And I think I first heard Q-tip on your podcast back in the day. And that is just such a great go-to, even though we don't really call them that here. I knew, I knew what you were talking about. The, the taking it personally, getting accusatory, getting on the back foot, all of that stuff. Like that was such a part of my behavior in response to my fear response to those triggers. I'd get irritated. Like I'd get super irritated when he had the voice. Like it just got my goat and it was like a button that he could press for me. And. And it was also partly because when he had that voice, I remember that it would sometimes lead to, it was usually a sign that he was also in a sensitive place. Mm. So we had this kind of vicious cycle of reactivity with each other and we could press each other's buttons. And that was bad before recovery. It was a very bad cycle, very harmful. And I guess in this particular reading of Courage to Change, it speaks to that. So I'll read it from September 23, or if you have the paper version, page 267. One of my character defects is to respond in kind to behavior that is directed at me, to react to insults with more insults, to rudeness with rudeness. I never thought to act any other way until I began traveling to work with a longtime member of Al-Anon. Each day when my friend would stop to buy the morning paper, the person behind the counter was surly and hostile. No matter how rudely she was treated, my friend consistently behaved with courtesy. I was outraged. Doesn't Alanon tell us we don't have to accept un- unacceptable behavior? Finally, I asked her about it. She told me that since this is the only newsstand around, she would rather detach from the behavior than do without her morning paper. She explained that she's powerless over other people's attitudes, but she doesn't have to permit them to goad her into lowering her own standards for herself. To the best of her ability, she chooses to treat everyone she meets with courtesy. Other people are free to make whatever choices they prefer. And today's reminder is, today I will let it begin with me. I do not have to accept unacceptable behavior. I can begin by refusing to accept it from myself. I can choose to behave courteously and with dignity. And I I really feel like this is... Uh, this should be permanently bookmarked for me when I live with my (laughs) (laughs) alcoholic partner. I do not have to accept it from myself. Oh. Yeah. Ouch. <laughs> no attacked. <laughs> oh, because I do get called out on that occasionally. Huh? And, but also, the other principle that I hear in this reading is that I can choose whether I need to change my behavior in response to something that somebody else does. This person chooses to keep interacting with that person because she wants to get the newspaper. And for her, not getting the newspaper is less desirable than putting up with the rudeness. And I think that comes back to this 
title, My Recovery is Not Conditionally Yours. I could choose how to react to your behavior, to my loved one's behavior. I could choose what is more important. There's another slogan, right? How important is it? But it's also, and I know I said this earlier, for me, it comes down to detachment. Um, yeah. The, the attachment-detachment dichotomy that, or transition maybe is a better way to put it, that I had to learn when I, when I really started working a program of recovery, I had to learn that I did not have to react to everything my loved one did or said. Not easy, sometimes really hard. But when I don't do it, I'm letting myself get jerked around, which is not comfortable, not serene. And I think it's it's maybe harder to remember that now because the things that are jerking me around if if i can use that phrase are smaller than they used to be the consequences of heavy drinking tend to be at least after a while really obvious and pretty big the consequences of the the things that i could let drag me around today are smaller and so I don't maybe feel them as, as hard, as strongly as the alcoholic behavior. But I also have a lot more practice. And I think in recognizing when that's happening and also in more automatically doing things like pause, doing things like detach. So it still happens, but I think it's, it doesn't happen as much and i'm more likely to maybe recognize when it's happening i don't know i'm not sure where i'm going with that so i'll stop now that's i think that's quite pertinent because i think that's one of the differences for me as well and i had this great quote that someone i know in the program has said a few times and that i think she got from someone else in our meetings i have a different class of problems now mm -hmm. which i Absolutely. just love that it's yeah and I, yeah, and the things that feel like problems, they're just in a different space to what, yeah. to that kind of heaviness that I felt before program, even when some of the problems are bigger or bigger in real life, actually, when I think about it, my response is so different now, mostly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I keep thinking about the difference between reacting and acting. We talk about the awareness, acceptance, and action. That action comes out of a process of discernment and has more intentionality about it. This is what I have learned, that I can take the time to understand what maybe not the best action for me is, but what a, an appropriate, a good action is for me, and then take that intentionally. Whereas reaction is much more of a reflex, does not involve thinking so much. Uh, it, it comes very quickly and often does not lead to the most desirable outcome. Uh, and so even just being able to take that pause 
and change a reaction into an action or into no action is is a huge tool in this process, right? Very much so. Those triggers are still there and they'll continue to be there. So really the only thing that I can control is asking for help from my higher power and all the things that I have available to me. Yeah, just continuing on just the bare basics, calling my sponsor when I need to, contacting friends in my fellowship, the ones that know my story and who I don't need to fill any background in on. So they're just already where I am. Mm -hmm. And I can just say, today is X or Y, and this is how I'm feeling. And we actually share gratitude lists with each other now and then as well, which is a lovely thing to do. Yes. We have a little WhatsApp thread, a few of us, where we just randomly, if we're feeling it, we send each other a gratitude list, which is inspiring because sometimes I need to be reminded that I probably need to do one. I might do some writing. I might read something from the daily readers or do a topic reading. But usually I prefer to pick from the daily readers whatever today's date is because then I'll encounter various things and I'm not coming in looking for something particular. And the other thing is, of course, that's really important for me to continue all of this is keeping up with my step work. I guess I've also come to realize that taking breaks because the kind of step work I'm doing is taking breaks is really important and I can only do it when I feel right doing it and not just because it's obligatory or because I'm doing it to please my sponsor. It's a funny dynamic sometimes because I'm in a particular kind of role and my sponsor is um, like in my career and my sponsor has a similar kind of role. And it's hard for me not to defer to her as a kind of authority figure or guru. And I have to be very careful with that and constantly check myself and be like, you're doing this for you. (laughs) You're not doing this for her. Recovery is about me. She's not going to give me detention for not doing my step work. But that's where my head's at sometimes. Yeah, that's the thing. So yeah, it's just really important for me. Again, it always comes back to let it begin with me because part of my disease is that I'm still reliant on how people respond to me or how I think people are responding to me for my sense of being okay in the world. And I'm working really hard at not being like that anymore, but it's so hardwired. Working with a sponsor is really great practice for that. And the great thing about it is that she knows that I'm like that because we're all like that a little. That's that's why we're here. I shouldn't speak for others, but certainly she has told me that she gets it. She gets where I'm coming from with this stuff. So I can I never have to feel like I need to be doing things to please her. The people-pleasing thing can go out the window for this. And I can let go of the outcome of that. So again, let it begin with me. <laughs> yeah. And mm. I think you have a, a closing reading about let it begin with me. Yeah. Also from Courage to Change, because it's my favorite reader. It's on page 337, which is December 2. I can easily itemize my loved one's limitations. Hours pass while I list the ways in which he could stand to change. But not one thing has ever improved as a result of this mental criticism. Yeah, that, ain't, ain't that true? <laughs> All it does is keep my mind on someone other than me. Instead of admitting my powerlessness over another person's choices and attitudes, I flirt with illusions of power. In the end, I am a little more bitter more hopeless, and more frustrated. And nothing about my situation or the other person has changed. What would happen if I took my list of criticisms and applied it gently to myself? 
I may complain about my loved one's verbal abuse. After all, I don't speak to him that way. But at the level of thought, I am just as abusive. The same attitudes exist in both of us. We just manifest it differently. Today's reminder. Alanon says, let it begin with me. When I identify something I dislike in another, I can look for similar traits within myself and begin to change them. By changing myself, I truly can change the world. Great reading. Yeah, and thanks for the topic. Thanks for bringing it here. After a short break, we will continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery is working in our daily lives. You picked our first song. What is it? I did. It's the second time I've picked a Big Thief song for this podcast. Can't remember which one was the last one I picked. I think it must have been Real Love, which is a really dark song. This one is called Paul. And yeah, it's one of those songs where when you look up the band talking about it, you realize that they often mean something completely different by the lyrics than how you hear the lyrics or how I have heard the lyrics. But for me, the song reminds me personally of how when I was in this cycle of breaking up with my partner or making ultimatums about if you don't stop drinking, this is over kind of stuff. It's the sort of back and forth bargaining and negotiating that we were doing and the things that he would say and promise and the way that I would be completely sucked into that when we were both in denial about how dysfunctional this was. So the chorus is a kind of reflection of the promises that he was making to me. I'll be your morning bright good night shadow machine. I'll be your record player, baby, if you know what I mean. I'll be your real tough cookie with the whiskey breath. I'll be a killer and a thriller and the cause of our death. So that's that one. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery recently? It has been actually a while since... I recorded an episode with another person, and since I recorded an episode with this section in it, partly due to some of the things I'm going to talk about. In particular, in December, my mother died, which threw a a wrench into the middle of, of, of December, and I think might have affected me emotionally more deeply than I thought it did, because... What I felt for several weeks was a lack of energy. And there are a whole bunch of factors that could have led into that. Uh, but I think part of it is, you know, that emotional impact of the death of both of my parents this year. And actually, the death of all of my blood relatives in that generation in the past two years. My mother's brother died in 2020. My father died early in 2021. His brother died later in 2021, and my mother died near the end of 2021. And that's it. There are non-blood relatives left, but, you know, my brother and sister and I looked at each other and said, wow, we're the elders now, which I don't really feel like an elder, okay, but that is what it is. Her death was not a surprise. It was not this huge like break for me because she and my father had been 
gradually slipping away from us over the years with their dementia. So by the time, and this was also true for my father, that by the time that her body gave up, her body decided to stop living. We had done, I had done, and I think this is true of of my brother and sister as well, had done a lot of grieving already. This was just kind of the stopper on it or whatever. I don't know the exact word that I want there. But at the same time, they're not there anymore. So when I think about how does recovery apply here, one is in being able to feel my feelings and in being able to recognize that Grief will continue to come, and it's okay when it comes, and that what I can do when that happens is to go with it, to feel the grief, to let it go. I was sitting in church the other morning, and there was a song that a couple people had recorded, the song, It's a Wonderful World. And here here it comes. You know, it's just that song has always been emotional for me, but... With the passing of my parents, it's from their era of music, and it's about all the wonderful, the things that can, that happen. And it just came up and I just sat there and I let the tears roll down my face sitting there, you know, because recovery has told me that that's okay, that I don't have to stuff it. In fact, that it's better for me if I don't stuff it. And also that it will come. And I'm reading again, we have this book. I'm going to find it. Uh, This book called Opening Our Hearts, Transforming Our Losses, which is about, really a lot of it is about grieving. Chapters talk about grief and loss and like the different ways in which we experience, we can experience grief and loss, partly as a result of being in a relationship with alcoholics or or addicts. And it's a really good piece of literature. I highly recommend it. And apparently it is now available as an electronic book. I see you've got it too. Somebody that I was talking to uh, on a podcast recently referred to it as the the tie-dyed book or the rainbow book. The the cover's got that tie-dye color thing going on. Anyway, so I have these, I have tools that I can use there. Another thing that is definitely affecting my energy level, affecting my ability to get things done is this stupid pandemic. It's just going on and there's pandemic fatigue. I'm just effing tired of it. I'm tired of the precautions that I choose to take so that I'm putting on a mask every time I walk into a building that's not my house and recently upgraded because of the Omicron variant and its contagiousness upgraded to wearing a real N95 mask everywhere. I wish I didn't have to do that. I wish I didn't choose. No, I'm glad that I choose to do that, but I wish that circumstances were such that I didn't have to choose to do that. Is that does that make sense? <laughs> sure. Um, sure. So I'm tired of that. There are people in my life who are really angry about that, and I can let it begin with me. I can detach, but it still affects me. I have chosen to stop being annoyed, to stop. Yeah, okay, to stop getting annoyed maybe is at, at, at people who choose to behave differently because 
I can understand. I can empathize with their choices. I may not think they're wise choices, but I can empathize with them and I can, I can understand where they're coming from and why they're making those choices. And just as you said, even if my loved one takes an action because of some action or something that I did, that's still about her. It's not about me. And I have to recognize that it's about her. It's not about me. And people making a different choice about how to live in this pandemic is very much about them and not about me, even if it affects me. And the third factor here is it's winter. And winter in Michigan tends to be very gray. And that affects my energy level also. So I have all these things that are going on that are pushing my energy level down. And I can recognize that. Again, the recovery tools of self-examination help me to recognize that. To recognize that I'm not taking care of myself in some of the ways that I would like to. Um, And that obviously I'm not going to make a huge change right away, but that I can encourage myself to take small steps because that's, we talk about progress, not perfection. And and that's what I need to do right now is I need to make small steps of, of progress in making sure I get outside and walk every day, even when it's 10 degrees Fahrenheit, which I don't know what that works out to and see, but it's damn cold and get out there with the duck bundle myself up appropriately, put little hand warmer things inside my gloves so my fingers don't get cold because the last couple of years, my fingers have started getting cold and staying cold, which is not a good thing. And that sounds like a recovery tool, like understanding the situation and behaving in accordance with the situation rather than in accordance with the way I wish it was. Like when my loved one was drinking and I wished she wasn't drinking, I could behave in ways I could behave as though she wasn't. And that didn't work out well for either of us usually. And the same thing happens with taking care of myself. So a lot of stuff where I'm working to apply my recovery tools to lift myself back up a little bit, but also, oh, and the last one in that category is stress eating. And this relates back to the conversation that we had about my judgmental thoughts about the way in which my wife eats. I have recognized that I don't have to follow that behavior, but also recognizing that I'm still, I'm doing it. I, if, and this is particularly goes together with the staying up late at night, watching TV or something, because then I find myself pulling out a bag of of chips or what do you call them? Do you call them crisps in Australia? I think the previous generation would have called them crisps, but we, we call them chips. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, pulling out a bag of chips and eating all of it, sometimes half of it, that's stress eating. And so that's also going on. And again, recognizing it and sometimes saying, yeah, I need to do this, but maybe I'll put some in a bowl and take the bowl into the TV rather than taking the whole bag. Tools, tools are good. And sometimes saying, you know what? I'm really, I'm not hungry and not going there. It happened the other day. I walked by the the snack cupboard and I was like, no, I don't need to open that. So I don't know. There's some progress there. The other thing is that one of our kids had some really significant chaos in his life last, towards the end of last year. And that chaos in his life does not have to translate to chaos in my life. And I am so grateful for that tool of being supportive, being loving without taking it on. And there wasn't really anything we could do to fix because 
he's an adult, he's hundreds of miles away, and he doesn't listen to us anyway. I mean, he think he does, but you know, this kid has always marched to the beat of his own drummer, always. I don't have to let it keep me awake. I don't have to let it lead to more stress eating. And that is a gift because I know that without this program, without everything that I've learned in, in almost two decades in recovery, I totally would be attaching myself to, to, to his chaos, which seems to be resolving. And with, without our help, we did help. He came and, and stayed with us for a week. He was just feeling really down and we could do that. We could be there. We could provide a place that was away from the chaos and that was a loving place to be. And that, that is exactly the kind of support that I've learned to give to my loved ones in, in this program. So with that, I'll pass. How is recovery working in your life recently? First of all, thank you for sharing all of that. That's some really rich stuff going on. And also, I just wanted to say I'm sorry for your loss as well for your mother. Well, thank, thank you. Yeah. Actually, can I, I do want to add one thing here, which is a bunch of podcast listeners have reached out, have responded to the the episode where I shared right after she had died. And I just want to say thank you to everybody who has reached out, who has shared your sympathy, has shared your sorrow with me. Those are messages I'm not going to read in the feedback section of the podcast. Uh, but I did read them all. I did listen to the voicemails and just thank you very much. Yeah, it sounds really difficult and it sounds like it's been a very, a couple of years of loss for you and your family. Yeah, sending all the strength to you for that. Yeah, I, I loved that. That's what you said about the, the bowl of chips versus taking the whole packet with you. Gosh, I, I am limitless with this stuff. If I don't put it in a bowl, I will finish it no matter what size it is. So I very much relate to that. And yeah, just also talking about what you said about the pandemic and how you respond now to other people's responses if they're different to yours is very pertinent for me. It's probably pertinent for all of us. One of my Al-Anon friends actually put this in a really helpful way. Everyone has their own risk matrix and it's based on so many different things and everybody has their own reasons for feeling the way they feel. And at this point, the only thing we can do is give everybody a pass. We just, and, and the best I can do is not to hate my neighbor, so to speak, for every time that they do something that I don't think makes sense or whatever that sort of irks me in some way or another. Mm -hmm. I can, I've also, like you, made a decision not to do that anymore because it's just not a nice way to go about the world. And we don't know how long we're going to be dealing with this for. I can only do my best and I believe that everybody else is doing their best. And that's the, the way I choose to understand everybody's behavior around me. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. What's happening with me at the moment? Recovery-wise, I'm very excited because I'm starting a new meeting. I'm beginning a new meeting in my very local neighborhood. And I had this idea quite a while ago because I have to travel far to get to any of the other in-person meetings. And I'm done with Zoom, I have to be honest. Like I'm just over it. Unless I'm speaking to people outside my geographical area, 
I am currently at the point where I'm my risk matrix involves me making a decision that for my mental health, I also need to have human contact. And because of my youth and my health, I can I, I recognize that I can do that maybe in a way that somebody else might not feel comfortable doing. So of course, I'm not making that decision for anybody else except for myself. And a couple of the meetings that were broadly within my geographical area shut down or were put off for a while at the point when the pandemic started and haven't really restarted or have restarted only online. So I thought, it takes me a really long time to get to the in-person meetings that I like and that I want to get to. And I need to do something for myself about this because I also have other things in our life and I can't make it like a two-hour round trip to get to and from these meetings. It's just not practical for me anymore. But the, the thing is that I had this idea so long ago and because of this amazing thing called the Al-Anon pause, I didn't have to act on it straight away. I could float the idea with a few people over time. And I could sit on it and I could sleep on it and I could come back to it. And I think in the end, from probably around a year ago to the, to the actually making the idea happen is when I started to think, yeah, this is about the right time for me to start making this happen. Yeah, it was the right time in my recovery. I remember hearing someone sharing that they'd attended a meeting where they got pulled up on changing how they do the gender pronouns in the steps and so forth. I've spoken to you about this before. That's happened to me before. But the way that, that the people in the meeting pulled them up on it was simply to say, this is happening at the world service level now, but it's happening in al time. So in the meantime, just read it the way that it is on the, in, the, in the thing. And there are lots of different types of meetings. And in some meetings, the groups autonomously decided they're already changing it to gender neutral pronouns and all of this sort of thing. But there are some meetings where they haven't done that and they're choosing to go with Alan on time. And I really appreciated in a new way that concept of Alan on time. Like it is happening, but it's happening in Alan on time. And that's quite precious, I think. And I've tried to import that into how I do things. They don't need to be urgent and, and immediate to be effective and good. So this starting a new meeting thing is really quite exciting. I have just come upon this great venue that can host us. They're super helpful. They're really eager to have us there. There's actually been a Spanish-speaking AA group at the same venue three days a week for about the last 20 years. So they have a kind of precedent for what our needs are, which are quite similar. So that makes it quite easy. And yeah, I'm just, I'm looking forward to it. And I think it's going to be small, probably for a while. And it may not, like it may not work and I may, it, it may not continue. And that is also totally fine, but I'm ready to give it a, a, a red hot go and let go of the outcome. So that's the thing that's happening at the moment. In terms of my step work, as I mentioned before, I am up to step eight at the moment and it feels very daunting. All of the travel that I've done to see my family and also to see my partner and that whole the silly season has meant that I just, yeah, I've stalled on doing step eight. And I also feel like I've stalled because I've got a bunch of, I've got a bunch of resentments that I need to write up. They're, they're, they are there and they're affecting how I feel at the moment. And I just need to be freed of them, even if only temporarily. So I've got to do some writing and then I can start my step eight. But I will admit I'm procrastinating on this stuff. That's just the truth of it. And I guess the other thing that is live for me and recovery and how I've been implementing it in my life is that I just came back just over a week ago from visiting my my immediate family interstate. My birthday was while I was there and 
I had this idea in my head that I had booked this trip that included my birthday because wouldn't it be lovely to spend my birthday with my immediate family? And I haven't done that in probably 10 years. I don't think I've been there for my birthday in a really long time. And then I had this thought on in the lead up to my birthday that actually there's probably a good reason I haven't done this for 10 years, which came from just being reminded of what kinds of complicated dynamics arise from trying to do this with a blended family and a split family and family members who won't be in the same room as each other. So therefore I have to divide my time between them if I want to see them. And I sort of thought, yeah, like I had these moments of, okay, take a breath here and mental note to self next year you will not choose to have your birthday here, but you can do your best to enjoy it while you are here. And, and I, I was also <laughs> I was reminded of where I had learned a lot of my own manipulation and guilting kind of tactics. My mother didn't realize a few things about the particular day that my birthday fell on because I had told her a few days prior, I want to have, I have been invited to have dinner with these particular two family friends and, and my godson, my new godson, just letting you know that's happening. And then on the morning before, she said, actually, I'd really like you to be here for dinner on, on the night of your birthday. And, I, and the way that she framed it was, you have a choice, but the outcome of the choice <laughs> is very clear. If you make the other choice, I will be very upset. It was this it was the way that she put it. It's up to you, but no that it's it's not really up to you. And I had to laugh because I knew what was happening because it's very familiar and I haven't experienced it for a long time because I don't live there anymore. But the way that I used to react before recovery to stuff like that was just to get super angry <laughs> um, and annoyed and just like just extremely reactive. But instead, I walked away from the conversation before making any decisions and I called my sponsor and I talked to a friend in Al-Anon. I, I talked to the people who had invited me to dinner <laughs> as well, both of whom are in AA, so they know what kind of program of recovery I'm doing. They know my family very well. And yeah, I ended up making a decision that was about making sure that I'd have a good time with my mother for the rest of the time that I was going to be there which included saying yes to her request, but letting go of what would have previously been probably a, an extreme resentment about that. Like, I'm saying yes to doing what you want to do on my birthday, not what I want to do on my birthday. It's like about you right. somehow. But I, I actually was able to let that go because I thought it was the question of how important is it. And I decided that what was more important was to have a good time while I was staying with her. And for us to have a good time together and for me to leave on good terms. Now, that's a tricky one because it could, it could become purely people-pleasing. And there is a genuinely thin line <laughs> between those two things. But I was able to make a distinction because people-pleasing would just mean I'm purely doing this for the other person and I'm going to be pissed off about it the entire time. <laughs> so that's when it turns into a resentment. Whereas I had actually come to this new way of looking at it, which was this is also for me and I will do something for myself too, which is to ask whether those people who invited me for dinner can do something at a different time of day 
or what else can we do so that we can still do something together that I have to look forward to. But it was difficult and being faced with this kind of flagrant manipulation tactic was confronting. And I guess, yeah, I will not forget that there were good reasons why I chose to have my birthday on my own in other other years. But I learned from it. And the actual birthday itself ended up being lovely. Like once all the plans were in place, it was delightful. But the lead up was a little stressful. (laughs) And it can be that with family, I think, in general. And I guess the last thing I'll say with the blended, complicated family dynamic is back to the risk matrix. Everybody in the family had their own very specific risk matrix when it came to, because this was the first time in Australia that we quote unquote have been letting it rip, especially in um, the state that my family reside in. So on the one end, you've got my dad who will not stop anything that he normally does in his life and refuses to let the pandemic kind of stop him from living his life. And on the other extreme, you have my mother. Sorry, rather, I would say that my stepfather living with my mother, who is very fearful, very fearful, and basically saw me as a disease vector coming in and staying with them. (laughs) So staying with my father first and then moving to stay with my mother and my stepfather was just like a bit of a mind-bending experience because they were so extreme in their opposites in how they were handling it. And the thing that I had to do with that was come to peace with the fact that I have chosen to come here to stay with the family at a very challenging time for everybody and accept that to make this stay comfortable for me and for them, I will adjust to whatever they need to feel comfortable. And that's actually completely fine by me at this moment. Like they are the ones who are in their 70s and they get to set the terms. Mm. So I just came to peace with that. And so with my dad, I accepted that he wouldn't be doing things to be careful, but then I remembered that I'd be soon going to stay with my mom. (laughs) So I was careful on my Mm. end, but I didn't criticize him for what he was doing. And then I went to stay with my mom and my stepfather. And at one point, my stepfather got very upset with me because I had said before I was coming that I'm not going to be a total hermit. I'm going to see some people. It's going to be outdoors only, but I'm not going to only be at home all the time. And I had said to my mother by message before I came to stay with her, if this is a problem for you, please let me know and I'll make other arrangements. I was very direct. I was very honest. And I don't believe that she um, communicated that to him as I Mm. later learned, which Mm. was something I couldn't have controlled (laughs) because she wanted me to stay with her. And I think she knew that if she communicated that to him, he might have said, okay, yes, she should make other arrangements because I'm not comfortable with that. But instead she, so I said to her, did you tell him what I told you that I was going to be seeing other people? And she said, more or less. And I said, "Uh uh-huh, okay. (laughs) I think I understand what that means. I'm an Aladon, like uh I know what it means to not be honest. So I just let that one go and I let it pass because he, I said to my stepfather, would you like me from here on to stay, to get other accommodation or to stay on my brother's couch or whatever? Like I can do whatever you need. And he said, no, it's too late. And he was already in that frame of mind where it didn't matter what I said. He was going to be unhappy with what I was doing. So I just had to make a decision again, like what we said before. This is now about him. I've done my end. I've done everything I can do to be direct and honest and to ask them what they need and the rest is up to them. Yeah, really strong 
program recovery stuff having to come in and to be used during that whole trip. But, and it was hard work and I came back really ready for a kind of holiday from my holiday. (laughs) (laughs) Holidays can Um, be stressful. Yes. Yeah. But it was really good in lots of ways. And I feel genuinely like I'm feeling the promises of the, of this program actually really bearing fruit in a very material way. And it's beautiful. Um, and that's why I keep coming back. Yeah. Yeah. Looking forward, got a, a guest coming in February where we're going to talk about one or both of what feel like separate topics, but maybe they're not recovery, whether the alcoholic is still drinking or not, and the isms of the disease and how to deal with that in a healthy way. And I guess if the alcoholic is still drinking, you're dealing with the isms in a more blatant way. Although my experience is some of those isms hang around even when the drink is gone. So think about those. Uh, We welcome your thoughts. Please join our conversation, leave a voicemail or an email with your feedback or your questions. And Esther, how can people do that? You can call and leave us a voicemail at plus one seven three four seven zero seven eight seven nine five. Call right now to seven three four seven zero seven eight seven nine five. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. You can also send a voice memo or email to feedback at the recovery dot show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of My Recovery is Not Conditional on Yours, or any of our upcoming topics, including recovery, whether the alcoholic is still drinking or not. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. If you would like advance notice for some of our topics so that you can contribute to that topic, you can sign up for our mailing list by sending an email to feedback at therecovery.show. Put email in the subject line to make it easier to spot. Spencer, where can our listeners find out more about The Recovery Show? Hopefully you can find out everything about The Recovery Show at our website, which is therecovery.show. We have information about the show, including notes for each episode, uh, links to the books that we read from, the book that we read from today, but three different pages, videos for the music we chose, and there are some links to other recovery podcasts and websites. And a listener wrote recently and said, I thought you said recovery.show, but that's not you. That's not a website. And so I went out and found that recovery.show is also available and I got it. So now you can go to therecoveryshow.com if you're an old timer, uh, therecovery.show, which is the, the address that I've been pushing for a while and recovery.show that I'll take you to the same place with fewer typings, fewer words to type, whatever. So let's take a short break before I look at your feedback. And I chose the second song, uh, which is available on the website at therecovery.show slash 374. The song is King of Anything by Sarah Bareilles. And she said it was really fun to write a song that is basically telling somebody off, but sounds like a really cheerful song, which it, it does. Uh, and in this song, she's telling somebody to not try to run her life. So it felt connected to our topic of what you want is not necessarily what I want. I don't have to follow you, whatever. And these words that are in the chorus really capture it for me. I hate to break it to you, babe, but I'm not drowning. There's no one here to save. Who cares if you disagree? You are not me. Who made you king of anything? 
And I imagine you've probably heard the song before. It's just this really bouncy, cheerful song telling the guy off. My understanding is she actually wrote this aimed at a particular record executive. So it was trying to tell her what songs to play or what songs to write, perform. Oh, very good. That's funny. I, this sort of reminds me of Lily Allen's style of like really cheerful, mm-hmm. kind of upbeat, major key stuff. And then she's actually being really nasty. Oh, yeah. brilliant. Let's hear from you. Let's hear your voices. Carolyn is struggling with a question. She writes, Hi, Spencer. Thank you so much for all the work that goes into this show. It has helped me many times at all hours with specific problems that I can just search and hear real recovery about. Today, I am struggling with a particular issue I can't find a topic for, deciding to have children when my husband and I belong in Helenon. For me, I am struggling with this decision around having a second child. Is my recovery enough? My husband is not in recovery, though he is growing in his own ways. How do I give life to a human when I'm risking passing on so much pain? What if my mental health can't handle raising two children? How can I bring another child into the world with global warming? What kind of future am I setting them up for? Am I screwing up my own life, biting off more than I can chew? And on and on go the questions in my head. Part of me just wants to leave it up to my higher power to decide for me. But what would that look like? What would letting go and letting God look like? What does doing the footwork look like for a decision like this? Praying for guidance and meditating for answers is my next step, and I've reached out to my sponsor to work through this. But I doubt I'm the only Al-Anon that's struggling with this decision. Thanks, Carolyn. I think, for me, when we decided to have children, and neither of us was in recovery yet at that point, it's a big decision no matter whether you're in recovery, considering recovery, not in recovery, it's still a big decision. And I think those questions all apply For me, for us, I should say, since it was a decision that both my wife and I had to make, I don't know what what went on in her head, okay? But I do know that for me, I had to wait until it felt like the right thing to do. I had no idea what we were really getting into. I don't imagine most people who have children, at least the first time, know what they're getting into. What I do know is that I have tools that I have learned in recovery that can help me make decisions, whether it's a decision about having children or any other kind of big decision. In episode 354, Eric and I talked about making decisions. So you might go listen to that and see if anything there helps you with your process, because I think it is a process. Thanks for writing. Marianne says, hello, I love your podcast. I started coming to Al-Anon about four months ago out of desperation to change my life as it had become unmanageable due to the family disease of addiction. I want better for me and my kids and to try to be lovingly detached from my alcoholic slash addict husband. I understand that infidelity and addiction can go hand in hand and it has for the entirety of my 16-year relationship. It is so painful, and I have allowed so much mistreatment over the years. Are there any existing episodes that address this? Forgiveness, acceptance, trusting again, how to know what my actual reality was or is. 
If not, it would be so helpful for me and I'm sure others to have a future episode address this. We've not had an episode specifically about infidelity. I might suggest a couple of episodes that I believe certainly touch on the aspect of lying and so on and living with that, dealing with that. One is episode Fear of Abandonment, number 364 with Shannon. And the other one that I'm thinking of was a couple of episodes earlier, number 362, Avoidance, Running Away from Scary Feelings. Both of those, my guests talked about. Certainly a dysfunctional relationship. I believe the word gaslighting may have been used in at least one of them. So check those out uh, and and see if those speak to you. But also, yeah, it's it is a topic that does come up. And it's not one, thank goodness, that I've had to deal with. So I am, as usual, not the right person to, to really share on it. I need a guest who has been there and has maybe walked through it and used some of the recovery tools to, to help with the pain, with whatever, to, to live with it, through it, past it. So thanks for writing. Jesse sent us a short note. I think it's a shame how many people hand wave the idea of actively practicing gratitude away. I know to them it seems like something that couldn't possibly make a difference, but I'm very thankful that I have my own daily gratitude practice that has shown me differently. Today, I'm thankful for this practice and the patience I have to sit down and journal about it every evening. Tara sent an email. Hello. I want to say how grateful I am to have found your podcast. I have fought with my loved one about the idea of Al-Anon for the better part of a year. I was adamant I didn't need to because I'm not the one with the problem. My loved one has made so much improvement this past year, less relapses. He still fights his demons, but his spirituality has strengthened him and we both want to reconnect. So I found your podcast and realized after one episode how much I can relate. Side note, Spencer, you said you didn't recall setting up boundaries in one episode, but you did when you talked about the relapses your partner would have. That's the number one thing I identify with. I couldn't take the hurt from the relapse and acted like he was someone I would feed with a two-foot spoon. That was in quotes, I would feed with a two-foot spoon. I set up the boundary so it wouldn't hurt so much when he did relapse. He's been using AA terminology talking to me and telling me I'm not honest and I would get so angry because I felt like he was accusing me of being a malicious liar, especially because he has done so in the past. I now know what he's talking about. I've admitted to him in the past about walking on eggshells around him. The terminology in both programs is confusing unless you familiarize yourself with it. I knew this, and I know I have a lot to work on. Probably acceptance more than anything, but I don't care for using the term recovery because I'm not an alcoholic. I'm here listening to better myself and improve from who I was even beforehand. I listen to some podcasts, and I feel they justify the entire reason I don't want to go to a meeting. I don't want to share something to have people judge and classify me as you're in this stage of your recovery. It's not like the stages of grieving. Any advice for a begrudged newbie? Thanks, Tara. Tara, why do I call it recovery? I call it recovery because I was not emotionally and spiritually healthy. And through working the steps through coming to a lot of meetings, reading the literature, etc. I have recovered from that spiritual and emotional malady. If you don't like the word recovery, don't use it. I will say 
In my experience, I don't find judgment in the program. And having said that, we're all human. And I'm sure that all of us at one time or another act in ways that maybe we're not proud of, like being judgmental. But what I found here was a lot of acceptance. That's my experience. Apparently, it's not yours. Keep coming back. And, you know, the language is what the language is. And different people use it differently. So a little bit more. This concept of stage of recovery. I guess I could think about stages to some extent. But more, it's, for me, a continual change with steps forward and steps backward. And if we can define forwards and backwards in some way. Steps towards being more healthy, steps away from, or maybe just sideways, who knows. What I do know is that there were moments when I recognized that the way that I acted, the way that I felt, the way that I thought about things had changed. That doesn't mean that it changed at that moment. It doesn't mean that I suddenly went from one stage to the next, but I did recognize that there was a change. Yeah, that's what I got. David left us a voicemail. My name is David Kay. I was just listening to episode 370 again, and there was a question on there from a listener about people who have grown up or dealt with uh, or lived with people who struggle with mental illness as well as substance use disorder or addiction issues, I think she said. And I grew up with a mom who I bore. Early on, they classified that as manic depression, and she also, instead of taking her medication, which would have been her, um, her lithium, she chose to drink pretty, pretty heavily, pretty severely. And that unfortunately led to her, her death about almost 12 years ago. And I kind of personify that person that you're looking for who has lived with, um, someone who has pretty significant mental illness challenges, as well as alcoholism. I would love to share uh, more on that if an opportunity arises. But I have some great stories. I think some fascinating anecdotes. And um, there's obviously some fear that uh, and some, some rage within that, too. But I think at the other end of it, I'm fortunate to have come out uh, with this program and with uh, therapy and a very positive outlook I happen to work with individuals uh, in the medical field now who struggle with mental health issues often as their primary diagnosis. But some weird way, I have my mom to thank, and uh, I'd love to talk more about it. Uh, and lastly, I just want to say thank you so much for what you do, Spencer. My main qualifier uh, these days is my husband of 21 years, who is unfortunately incarcerated at the moment for having three DUIs within a six-year period. And so we're struggling, you know, living in the moment in our house. We have a 16-year-old son and trying to keep all the plates spinning. But I'm so grateful I have your podcast to listen to, to and from work. I have about a two-hour trek. I rediscovered you about three months ago. I downloaded your podcast about two years ago. And because I was active relapse myself, beating, I stopped going to Al-Anon. I resented the fact that I should be working on myself. Thanks. Thank you, David, for, for sharing your experience and perhaps offering to share it more fully in the podcast. Thanks. Renee writes, hello. 
Hope you're doing well. My condolences for your mother's passing. Can I request, please, an episode about being estranged from family members? The choice to detach with an axe, how to rebuild or reconnect after a few years of not being in touch. The feeling of not wanting to be in relationship, but feeling like I should. If anyone has any experience, strength, and hope, or a group episode with many people calling in, I would really appreciate hearing some perspectives on this situation. Thank you kindly, Renee. Yeah, I definitely hear from people in meetings or in letters about being estranged, about detaching with an axe from members of their family that they, for whatever reason, feel they can't have a a healthy, a good relationship with. And I understand that happens. If you're listening and you have some experience, strength, and hope to share on this um, aspect of detaching with an axe, being estranged from members of your family, please write, please call, and share that with us. This sentence, feeling not wanting to be, you write, in relationship, but it could be a lot of things, but feeling like I should, definitely something that, that I have experienced. And I think Elanon has given me sort of permission to stop saying should at myself when I feel that something is not good for me to be able to do that or not do that in this case without that sense of should, that sense of guilt, to be honest about what I really need and want, I think is is important. Wendy writes, hi, I just stumbled on your podcast because my close friend is in recovery from an alcohol addiction. I'm coming to understand that I have minimized the effect of my friend's addiction on my well-being, but I wasn't sure if Al-Anon would be right for me. I'm still in the first season of your show, but I've already heard so many things that resonate with me. Now I'm taking the first step to begin attending local meetings to start my own recovery. So I just wanted to thank you for your podcast and the honesty and vulnerability you've put forth to help others. Have a great day, Wendy. Thank you, Wendy. I'm happy to hear that something that we said, something that we are, has helped you to make that decision. And I hope that it works for you like it has worked for me and and many others. Martha says, hi, many thanks for your wonderful podcast, which I have discovered only in the last month or so. I'm a divorced 75-year-old retired educator with a 45-year-old severe alcoholic, I assume son, who was hospitalized six years ago with only 16% of his liver left. Since then, he has lived with me, but began drinking several years ago again by going to a dismal studio apartment he continues to pay for. He does not drink on my property, but the visits to his place are now of longer duration. He is extremely emotionally abusive to me with horrible verbal insults. Currently, he is not living under my roof because of recent vitriolic insults, but all of his things are in a room that he inhabited. I do not want him returning, but the mother in me insists, big guilt, that I must take care of him in some way. I do not know how. He has enormous rage, which he directs at me verbally, and still I can't begin to know what is best for him, as who am I to make that decision? What I do know is I cannot endure the vitriol of words any longer, but I feel profoundly guilty. Again, thank you for all you do. If you have any thoughts, I would so appreciate hearing from you, Martha. Martha, my primary suggestion is to focus on taking care of yourself. And of course, only you can decide what that means. It may include not letting your son live in your house. It may include severely limiting your contact with him. 
It may mean ending conversations when he's being abusive. It definitely, in my opinion, includes tending to your own physical, emotional, and spiritual needs first. I have not experienced this situation myself, but I have heard from others with similar experiences. And generally what I've heard is that they had to let go of, quotes, taking care of, end quotes, their alcoholic or addict adult child. It is not easy. It can be painful to see your child suffering, but he's the only person that can decide to get and stay sober. And it's it's a very tough balance when to intervene and when to let go and, and let God. I think that balance is different for everybody and really depends on situations. But what I do know is that you have to take care of yourself first. Episode 22, titled Parents Roundtable, one of the members of that group, Fred, I think, had at that time an adult child who was in and out of sobriety, and he shared some of the ways in which he was able to let his son live his own life. When I was living with active alcoholism, I found tremendous support in my Al-Anon meetings and from the people I met there. I don't think I could have had any sort of peace and serenity without that support, and I really encourage you to find a meeting or meetings that you can connect with. The Al-Anon Central Office has a list of online and phone meetings that might be helpful until you can find an in-person meeting in your area. When you visit a meeting, ask yourself, are most of the people here talking about the problems they are going through or about the solutions they have found? You really want a meeting where the focus is on the solution. I still remember early in my recovery going to a particular local meeting where the only sharing I heard was about problems. And I didn't go back because that meeting didn't do anything for me. So if you have had that experience in a meeting that you've gone to, really honestly try to find a different meeting because I'm sure there is one that, that can be of help to you. Chris left us a voicemail. Hi, everyone. It's Krista from Nevada. I just wanted to call in and let you know that I really enjoyed the podcast recently about boundaries. I hadn't heard it explained before that if there's still a choice for a person that you're not trying to control it. I Again, I've never heard that, but I really appreciated that perspective because that's something I struggle with. Am I trying to control it? And I know that I've been told from the program and my sponsor that if I say it more than once, I'm trying to control it. And I find myself doing that often. So I really had a lot of thought after your episode and I appreciate it. Thanks for being there and I hope everyone has a great week. Yeah, boundaries are tricky, definitely. Thanks for calling. Razy says, Hi, Spencer. I have been listening to your podcast for some time now and appreciate it so much. I've gone back to my first in-person meeting after a really bad breakup from my last sponsor at the beginning of COVID. I was hesitant to return to Al-Anon, but I want what you have. I want a meeting and support that I get from your podcast, but I'm having a hard time finding it. I've had three sponsors. I've lifted the 10,000-pound phone many times, but haven't made connections, and in most cases have not gotten responses. My experiences in Al-Anon has been very much an I program and not much of a we program. Any experience, strength, and hope for me. Thank you, Razy. I think 
definitely the last couple of years with COVID and all have been a lot harder to really come all the way in and sit all the way down and stay as a, a saying I've heard has it. I know that for me, I'm just more tired, less motivated to, to, to do things, to work program. And that probably is true for a lot of other people too. I don't know. I would say, please keep coming and maybe just come and listen for a while. Share when you're moved to share. And what do I want to say? What I want to say is just maybe relax a little bit about it. I know it can feel urgent, but sometimes these things just, sometimes they take a little while. I've heard so many stories of the right sponsor showing up unexpectedly after some time when maybe when a person wasn't really even looking for them. And I know that can happen. I'm sorry that your experience has been different. And honestly, I feel like in many of the Al-Anon meetings that I attend, there is not very much emphasis put on sponsorship, on, on what it means to have a sponsor, what it means to be a sponsor. And, and that may be part of the issue here, too. I don't know. Thanks for writing. And that's it for today. Thanks for writing, everybody. Esther, you picked a third song uh, for our show today. What is it? Our last song selection is I Hate Myself for Loving You by Joan Jett and the Black Hearts, which is an old classic, I think, from like 88, which you can listen to at therecovery.show slash 374. I find it to be a real kind of power anthem in its vibe <laughs> and its aesthetic. And at the same time, also in the words, because it's really honest and vulnerable. And it is sometimes how I feel when I'm reminded that I love an alcoholic. Like I think last night or yesterday when I was experiencing the voice as the trigger, I really felt that. I was just like, why do I have to? Yeah. And yeah. So whenever recovery he's done and maybe doing won't take away from the fact that he's always going to have some of the things that make him an alcoholic. And yeah, sometimes if I'm in a good place, these things feel okay. And at other times they just don't feel okay. And the following lyrics from the chorus ring really true for me. I hate myself for loving you. Can't break free from the things that you do. I want to walk, but I run back to you. That's why I hate myself for loving you. Thank you for listening. Please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you're facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.